Welcome back to another episode of the Just Checking In podcast. I'm your host, Freddie Cocker, and this podcast is brought to you by Vent, a place where everyone, but especially men and boys, can open up about their mental health issues, break down stigmas, and start conversations. Each pod, I check in with a special guest. We have a natter and a chat about all things mental health, as well as anything and everything else they are passionate about. If it helps that person with their mental health, we discuss it. In today's episode, I am checking in with Amanda Dashwood. Amanda works as a practitioner for an organisation called the Revenge Porn Helpline. Amanda has worked for the helpline since October 2021, which supports all adults affected by intimate image abuse or IIA in the UK. In our conversation, we will refer to revenge porn as IIA throughout, as this is the established umbrella term for it. In this episode, we discuss what IIA is, the four different forms of it, and the disproportionate amount of male victims there are from one form of IIA, which I'd never heard of, called sextortion. We also discuss how IIA is used in domestically abusive relationships, why two forms of IIA, voyeurism and sharing private images and videos, are disproportionately female victims, the famous examples of this, including the court case of the convicted reality TV star Stephen Bear for committing the former, and a tool that the helpline have developed where people can protect their sexual images if they suspect a perpetrator might look to publish them on the internet. For Amanda's mental health, we discuss the mental toll that dealing with distressing calls to the helpline has, how she detaches and switches off and protects her mental health, and a period of travelling she did to Vietnam and Bali to work as an English language teacher. So this is how my check-in with Amanda Dashwood went. Amanda, welcome to the Just Check-In pod. Thank you so much for letting me take the time to check in with you. When I came across the work that you do with the Revenge Porn Helpline, I was really keen to get someone on from the organisation to talk about it, and particularly how this affects males. We'll obviously talk about how it affects females too, but predominantly males. So thank you for being brave and coming on. First of all, how are you on this Saturday morning? Hi, Freddie. Thank you for having me. This is very exciting. It's my first podcast, so I'm really pleased to be here talking about the helpline. I'm very good. The sun's out. It's a Saturday morning. Got the whole weekend to come. I do have a hot water bottle on my lap because it's absolutely freezing. But yeah, all good. <laughs> Excellent. Yeah, it's uh, currently literally zero degrees outside my flat. So I think um, the only time I'll be going out was probably to do a bit of shopping and I might have to put on eight layers <laughs> to do that as well. So there we go. This is a world I was fairly uneducated about, so you'll be educating me and the listeners about this, Amanda. So without further delay, are you ready to start the show and talk all about it? Let's go. Let's begin your podcast by talking about the work you do for the Revenge Porn Helpline, Amanda. So firstly, tell me how you joined it as a practitioner, what your role entails, and why we describe this as intimate image abuse, or IIA, as we'll now refer to it in the podcast, and not revenge porn as it is colloquially used in the mainstream conversation. Sure. Okay. So I joined the helpline back in October 2021. I saw the job come up and I just thought, wow, that sounds really unusual and weird. My background was I worked before for a rape crisis 
centre. So my interest was supporting victims of sexual violence and the job came up and it, and it just sounded something I wanted to be involved in. So we support all adult victims living in the UK who have been affected by intimate image abuse. We provide confidential and non-judgmental support over the phone and via email. We are a very practical support service. So this means that the bulk of our job is actually removing content that's been shared publicly online. We also provide information about social media, community guidelines, how to report accounts and things like that. And finally, your last question, we do not use the term revenge porn. I know that sounds weird because our name is literally the Revenge Porn Helpline. And we do go round in circles as a team kind of having these conversations it's really difficult because I think yes. people know what revenge porn is and they don't know what intimate image abuse is and we have to be recognisable so people know what we do. But as practitioners, we will never use that term. The term is incredibly problematic. So the word revenge implies that the victim has done something wrong. And, you know, by definition, that kind of makes them deserving of the abuse. I do see that, yeah. It can be really, really problematic. People are already feeling like they've done something wrong. So when you're kind of using this term revenge, it, it kind of adds to that feeling. And obviously, porn is something that we think should be made consensually and for entertainment. You know, people should be enjoying pornography for entertainment purposes. This is not porn. It is abuse. Yes. Yeah. I get why it's used because the colloquially people think of a specific use of it and therefore would associate with I completely understand and agree with the reasons why it is problematic for sure. Let's talk about the four forms of IIA now because it's very much an umbrella term. So just explain to the listeners the four main forms and how they exploit victims of either sex. Of course. So the four types of abuse that we're mainly talking about when we say intimate image abuse is the obvious, the sharing of images and videos. So this can be both offline and online. It could be showing somebody your device in person, you know, showing somebody an image in that way. It could be printing off images and having them as hard copies. It could be sent over text message, over email, or it could be posted publicly onto social media or shared onto an adult website. The second would be the threatening to share of images and videos. So this is usually used in sort of abusive relationships. It might be used to coerce somebody into doing something that they don't want to do or remaining in that relationship when they don't want to. Then the third is voyeurism. So the kind of legal definition of voyeurism is to record a sexual image or video of somebody without their knowledge or consent. That sounds like a peeping Tom, like the old school term, basically. When people hear voyeur, I hear peeping Tom in my head. Yeah, that's 100% it. So it could be something like a sexual assault that's being recorded, or it could be somebody being recorded in the shower, somebody being recorded when they're asleep. They just didn't consent to that being recorded. And then finally, which I think we're going to talk about quite a lot today, is sextortion. This is a little bit different from the other forms. So sextortion, I'll go into this more later, but it's essentially when two people meet online, they form a relationship, they are persuaded into sharing sexual content, and then that person blackmails them for money. So this is when we're talking about when we get the, the kind of majority of sort of male victims. It's a huge thing at the moment. It's, it's dominating our caseload. Mm. So it's kind of different from the other forms. It's, it's usually strangers. They don't know each other. And the motivation is purely financial. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, we have other kind of things that are slipping into this. So we have things like collector culture, doxing, um, deep fakes. Swatting. Which, <laughs> it's becoming more complicated, the kind mm. of landscape. And these behaviours will continue to change as the technology gets better. As you said, we're going to dive into sextortion a little bit later in the pod. But I want to sort of dive into each one of these forms a little bit if we can. So the first one, sharing of private images and videos. Now this 
disproportionately affects female victims. So why is that? And apart from men simply not doing this, how do we tackle it? Because I'm all about providing solutions on this podcast, as well as just pointing out problems. Of course. Yeah. I, to be honest, Freddie, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know <laughs> well, there we go. Let's, let's, <laughs> let's leave the podcast in. <laughs> I don't know why it's majority female victims, but but that is unfortunately what we see. That's what our data is saying. That by all means doesn't mean that we don't support a lot of men as well. Mm-hmm. And we really do try and get the message out there that anybody can be a perpetrator of intimate mm-hmm. injuries and anybody can be a victim. I think in terms of tackling the problem, we need to be having more conversations around consent. I think consent is something that we talk about a lot offline, but it's not something that kind of goes into our online worlds. If somebody shared an image the person that's been trusted with that image, if they've been told not to share it, you know, that's implicitly implied. Yeah, yeah. Then, <laughs> then they have a kind of responsibility to not do that. And if they do, they've committed a crime and 100% of the responsibility lies on them, not the victim. So it's kind of very much tackling this sort of victim blaming mentality that we still have, unfortunately. Mm. And I know you don't use the term revenge porn. So does this form of IIA tend to occur as a form of not revenge, but reputation destruction? by predominantly male partners in this form of abuse in relationships if say the woman ends it and he wants to destroy a reputation or even provide a way of her being rejected by future male partners if they know that this image is in the public domain yeah definitely we see that an awful lot and you know we also kind of want to challenge that classic narrative as well like people share images for a whole host of reasons. okay by all means um, please tell me it's yeah it's, it's kind of not always about that sort of in a relationship, you know, classic, and the relationship ends, and the you know disgruntled ex partner yes, wants, yeah. wants. That's to how I think of it. Sorry, yeah. so my my apologies. It, it certainly does happen an awful lot, but yeah, it's also things like people might share images to kind of show off to their friends. It's like a status thing. It might be used to kind of stalk somebody, to harass somebody, mm. to embarrass somebody, and and then there's also that kind of financial gain as well, or you know, doing it to force somebody to meet up with them. Mm-hmm. meet me tomorrow otherwise I'm going to share this with you know with your parents on Facebook or whatever it mm. is it is a whole host of reasons but yeah certainly we see that an awful lot that mm. kind of destroy your reputation make you look bad sometimes we sort of get cases where there might be children involved and they're kind Oof. of going through the courts and and trying to get custody and it might be used to kind of discredit somebody's reputation yeah those are the kind of classic cases the second form is more of a indirect threat so it's it's not publishing it but it's threatening to publish it so to speak so i imagine this type of threat as you said could be used stereotypically in perhaps domestic abuse relationships or if they're going through the family court system by male or females as is a podcast predominantly for men but we try and help everyone how does it affect men in these relationships by female perpetrators and also in same-sex relationships say with gay men Sure. So I think the threatening share content can be just as scary as actually sharing it. I think it's kind of living with the unknown sometimes when they're going to do it, if they're going to do it, where they're going to do it. It's all those sort of questions. And we occasionally get, you know, perpetrators might say things like, I have shared it, but they won't tell the victim where. So they're kind of like, oh my God, something's out there. How the hell do I go about finding that? You know, the internet is so vast. Who's seen it? It might add to this feeling of paranoia when they kind of walk down the street or yeah. they do their local food shop. You know, who's seen this image of me? So that can be really, really terrifying. In terms of the kind of male victims being a kind of victim of this, I think it would affect them in exactly the same way. You know, I think it's all those same feelings of feeling really trapped, feeling like they have to do what the perpetrator is telling them. Otherwise, the content will be shared. They may feel like they can't reach out for support, Mm. can't talk to anybody, that, you know, there's a real fear around the consequences of how their life will change. Is it a lot of sexual shame as well being viewed differently? Um, I think, 
What do you mean by that? So as in sexual shame, as in if the image is shared and people go, oh, I didn't know you were like this behind closed doors or something like that, like the reaching in of the public into your private realm, because everyone's yeah. a bit weird behind closed doors. Let's be real. <laughs> yeah, no, definitely. I think, yeah, of course, it's, it's just really, really intimate, isn't it? Mm. It's something that you didn't intend for people to see. And in some ways, it's kind of mad that we're all so ashamed of just body parts but it, it is the way it is it's it's private and yeah it's deeply shaming it's deeply violating it's the kind of worry of what's going to be the impact Are my family going to see me differently Are my colleagues going to see me differently is this going to affect my future employment yeah it's all those feelings it's fear it's anger it's shame it's awful mm. it's it's a really horrible crime when it comes to gay men i imagine this is just me speculating here, but I imagine gay men may send more intimate images to each other than perhaps straight men do to women. Because I've seen Grinder, and Grinder is a very well place. I've a lot of, got a lot of gay mates who show me. I was like, <laughs> when my gay mate said to me, "What's Fred? I can get someone around here in ten minutes." I was like, "What? You can do that?" <laughs> so, do you give different advice or support to gay men versus straight men? No. No? Okay. No, the, the basic advice is always the same. Every single case, regardless of their sexuality, regardless of their gender, regardless of their race, whatever it is, is different, right? Mm -hmm. Every case that comes in is so complicated, usually. You pick up the phone and people just come at you with so much information and it's my cousin and it really, really complicated, all these people that are involved. And I guess our job as practitioners is to really unpack that and question where we need to question, find out more where we need to find out more and tailor our advice to that specific case. Ultimately, yeah, mm. regardless of those things, abuse is abuse. So mm -hmm. the advice is going to be different for everybody, mm. but it, it doesn't kind of make it any different, I suppose, whether they, whether it was a sort of straight relationship or a gay relationship. You also said something that I found quite shocking, which is sometimes it's not even a partner who makes these threats, but it's a work colleague or even a neighbour. Can you give some examples of that? Obviously, you know, maintaining confidentiality, because that sounds quite shocking to me. Yeah, of course. It's kind of like I said earlier, it's it's people share images for a whole host of reasons. So that thing to kind of embarrass somebody, humiliate somebody, to stalk somebody, that might happen a lot. Sometimes I, I think I had a case the other day and she didn't have any idea who it was, but it had been going on for a couple of years of her friends being messaged on, on social media and I've got these images and saying very personal things about her, where she worked, all these kind of things. Oh my um, God. Yes. And that's, yeah. And you know, it's like somebody in your community. Yeah. It's just those kind of same cases, harassment generally mm. that we tend to see. When it comes to the third form, which is voyeurism, as you said, it's a sexual situation, which is recorded by the perpetrator without the victim's consent, sometimes involving hidden cameras, sometimes not. Now, the most infamous case the public will know about was when reality TV celebrity Stephen Bear was convicted of doing this to his ex-partner. Like IIA Form 1, this predominantly affects women too. So tell me how this affects a victim's mental health, particularly women. Yeah, so I think in all the same way that we've kind of described before, it's ultimately the word that always comes to me is violating. It was private. Whatever was happening in that situation was never intended to be recorded. It was never intended to be seen by anybody. Like I said earlier, the kind of most extreme cases of this are these sort of sexual assaults that are then recorded. And not only does that victim have to deal with the trauma of that situation, but then there's this whole other factor of that was recorded and that is going to be viewed by people and enjoyed by people. So you're kind of reliving that trauma every time you think that that recording is being shown. So, yeah, hugely, hugely devastating for those victims. And how do you take content down like that when it's posted, like the actual process of doing it? OK, so... <laughs> 
We only remove content when it's been shared publicly online. There is no way for us to remove content shared over, you know, a text message, an sure, email, yeah. a direct message, things like that. So what we do is we will contact the website directly and we will say that this content is illegal. It's been shared illegally and we will ask for them to be removed. The majority of websites are really cooperative. They'll come back to us and they'll, they'll just delete it. No more sort of questions asked. Obviously, you get the websites that are sort of set up for that purpose, essentially, to, to share unconsensual content. So you're never going to get it all down. We do have a 90% takedown rate, which we're really, really proud of. So if a client comes into us and they know where the content has been posted, that's really helpful. We just get them to send us the URL link and then we can take it over from them and go from there. If a client gets in touch and says, I think something's out there and I don't know where, we have a couple of different methods that we would use to search for that content. So if the client has access to the content on their device and they feel comfortable sharing that with us, we will ask them to send it over to us and then we can do something called reverse image searching, which I'm sure a lot of people have heard of. Essentially, you put the image back into the search engine and it searches and finds any websites sharing that same image. So it's a, it's a good basis to start off when we kind of don't know. Or alternatively, somebody will get in touch and say, I don't know where it is and I don't have access to the content. So that can be really, really difficult. So then we might use a facial recognition search tool. We might ask for a simple selfie style image. That's difficult to say. And then we will run that through our system. And it's quite sophisticated technology. It will trawl the internet for any visual likenesses. So it will find any website sharing any images or any videos of that person. Obviously, neither tool are 100% reliable, as nothing is with technology, but it is a really good starting off point. And I think it can provide reassurance to people if we can't find anything, then even if something is out there, if we can't find it, it's unlikely that anyone they know is going to be able to find it, which I know isn't the ideal answer, but it provides some reassurance for them. I want to move on to the final form now, which is called sextortion, as you said. Now, according to a Sky News article, sextortion is now the most reported issue with 1,124 cases in 2021 compared to 593 in 2020, with 88% of cases involving a male victim. And you told me, fair, 92% of your calls on this issue are also men. So how does it differ from the three forms and why is it overwhelmingly male victims, do you think? Okay, so just to kind of start by explaining what sextortion is. So sextortion is when two people will meet on a dating website or a social media platform. And these people will have incredibly realistic looking catfish type profiles. There is no reason why you would doubt that they weren't a real person. And they will spend some time, they're incredibly manipulative. They'll spend some time trying to build your trust. And then they will ultimately persuade you into sharing a sexual image. Or they might ask you to perform a sexual act over a webcam. And then when they have that content, the behavior very quickly changes and they start bombarding you with these really terrifying messages. It usually begins with the line, I'm going to ruin your life. And they will start asking for quite large sums of money. Otherwise, they say that they will share the images on social media. In the meantime, as they've built up that relationship, they've usually taken screenshots of their friends and family members. So when they're sending these really horrible, threatening messages, they're bombarding them with screenshots of people they know on social media. So it's terrifying. It's really, really terrifying. People panic. They don't know what to do. They often pay some money. I can completely understand why. Ultimately, once money's sent, they usually ask for more. So it mm. usually kind of can sort of spiral from there. So yeah, it's definitely way more men that are being affected by this. I don't think men are talking about it enough. I do so many of these calls every day and I just find it mad that it's like something that people still haven't heard of. 
yeah, it's really, really distressing for people. Mm. And when the perpetrator is always this catfish account, which seems on the surface very legitimate and genuine, and dating is now, sadly and depressingly, almost all online, how difficult is it for these men? You know, there's a few examples of a lot of middle-aged men getting caught up in this, let alone young men. How do they navigate this world and trust who is a girl showing interest or sliding in their DMs and who is a malicious person or even gang criminal gang hiding behind the account it's really difficult really really difficult these catfishing accounts are becoming more and more sophisticated you know some of the time they they've got loads and loads of followers people always say that to us of i really thought that it was genuine so yeah spotting the differences is becoming really really difficult and we don't want to start saying you need to be careful and, and you need to stop meeting people online and you need to stop engaging in these behaviors because well no of course you shouldn't it's a quite normal healthy part of adult relationships right to meet someone on a dating website and share some images and w- whatever it is so we don't want to be sending out that message i think just definitely just raising awareness that this is a thing to trust your gut i suppose if something's moving very very quickly then just being maybe a little bit cautious those kind of telltale signs of asking to move between platforms mm. is, is something that we see a lot they are very clever so yeah if somebody's asking to kind of move between lots of different different platforms then i think that should be some warning signs mm. but yeah it's really really difficult the darkest part of this form before we move on is that one method of sextortion these perpetrators use is not just to threaten that they'll publish the pictures or send them to their families or whatever but they'll also accuse them of being a child abuser if they don't pay them the money, which causes more shame, fear, the cycle you know, goes on and on and on and stops them from going to the police. How do you tackle that? Yeah, it's awful. Callers are so distressed and often they won't want to reach out for the support because they're terrified that somebody will believe it. So, you know, they'll call and they'll kind of tell you what's happened and then right at the end they'll be like, they've said that they thought I was talking to somebody under the age of 18. And then as soon as you say that's really common. We see that threat used a lot. It's like you can feel the relief being lifted off their shoulders, but you know, they don't want to go to the police. They're terrified that it's going to affect their jobs. You know, we, we support a lot of people that work with children. It's horrible. So, so yeah, I suppose the way we try to tackle that is just so much reassurance, right? It's these accusations are really common. They're used a lot. It's just part of the threat. All they are trying to do is create panic and create fear because that will make you more likely to pay. But what actually happens in in reality, it is unlikely that content gets shared. It does happen, but the majority of cases, it doesn't happen. Just stay calm, take a deep breath, try to think rationally. These people are based overseas. Their intention is purely financial. They don't particularly want to share this content. If they can avoid sharing the content, they want to make you scared. They want to make you panic and they want to make you pay. Ultimately, take some screenshots so you have some evidence block the accounts, reach out for support is is the best thing you can do. You spoke earlier in the pod about that brilliant 90% takedown rate of the content. So what needs to change when it comes to tackling this issue? For example, do internet service providers need to be better? Does government legislation globally need to be in sync? What would you like to see or what would your organisation like to see or advocate for? Sure. Yeah, we're really proud of this 90%. It's a total of 300,000 images and videos that we've taken down since the helpline um, was set up in 2015 so we work pretty tirelessly the law needs to be more more robust which i think there's going to be huge changes with with the online safety act which is going to be great so right now the current law which was implemented in 2015 is it's against the law to share a private sexual image or video without consent and with the intention to cause distress the law is going to take away 
this with the intention to cause distress, essentially. So as we talked about earlier, people share images for so many different reasons. But legally, unless it can be proven that the perpetrator's motivation was to cause that person distress, it wouldn't be considered a crime. So yeah, the kind of new laws that are coming in, the legislation is incredibly complicated. We're still sort of trying to get our head around it. But the law is going to become more robust, hopefully, and kind of hold, I suppose, these kind of platforms and online sites to a bit more accountability, which will give us a little bit more scope to try and get the content down. And before we move on, the helpline is an 18 plus service, so it's only available to adults. However, for any of my listeners who might be parents, they might have kids who are between the ages of maybe 12 to 17. And we both know that kids navigating the world nowadays is a wild west. They've got all these social media apps, you know, all the hormones are going through. There's going to be intimate image abuse happening with them too. For any listeners who are worried about that for their kids, where can they go? What resources would you recommend? Of course. So if there is an image of a child online, if it's child sexual abuse material, then we would encourage going to the Internet Watch Foundation. So they have trained analysts who can view that content and remove that content. So if it's already out there and it's been shared, Internet Watch Foundation. If it's a young person who wants support themselves, we would encourage going to Childline. So they support anybody up to the age of 19. And they have a tool called Report Remove, which can help the child kind of get that content down. And then finally, there is a tool called Take It Down, which is the under 18 version of what we operate as Stop NCII, which I'm going to talk about in a moment. But essentially, the child can upload the image, create a digital hash, and the digital hash prevents the content from being uploaded onto other platforms. So this is particularly good if somebody under the age of 18 is being threatened. Man, I really hope those practitioners who have to look at the uh, child sexual image abuse have some good mental health safeguards in place because, Jesus Christ, that doesn't sound like a job I want to do. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> let's talk about that tool you mentioned now. You've developed it alongside Meta, which is probably the best bit of news they've had this year. And uh, it empowers people who may become potential victims to stop it happening. How do you do that? Okay, so stopncii.org. It stands for Stop Non-Consensual Intimate Imagery. It is a tool that the victim can go to themselves. They don't have to share the content with anybody else. So it's about kind of empowering people to take control of their images themselves. They upload the image or the video and it creates a digital hash. So a digital hash is like a fingerprint for that image or that video. And the hash is saved in the secure bank and it is shared with platforms that we have on board with us. And it essentially will prevent that image or video from being uploaded onto those participating platforms. So each platform has a slightly different way that they go about it. Some kind of just prevent the content from being uploaded. Others flag it with a moderation team. So if the content is uploaded, it will be flagged and the moderation team will be able to look at it much, much quicker and get it taken down. So the current platforms that we have on board with this are Facebook, Instagram, Threads, TikTok, Reddit, Bumble, OnlyFans, Pornhub and Snapchat. So it's a really good thing to do if people are being threatened or if they're just concerned their image might be shared or they just want to protect their image from being shared publicly onto those platforms it only covers public posts on those platforms it won't cover direct messages but yeah it's really popular it's used by people all over the world it's accessible to anybody over the age of 18 as long as the content is of a sexual nature let's reflect on this topic now so first of all what has been your proudest achievement at the helpline so far um Without sounding really cheesy, I think you have proud moments every single day working on this helpline because you are just constantly getting content taken down. And when you see that 404 error message, 
when you go to check. <laughs> Normally people are like, down. oh, goddamn, 404. <laughs> You're like, yes. <laughs> yeah, not us. We absolutely love it. It's just such a win. You really kind of feel it, particularly if there's a bit of content that you've tried quite a long time to get down and you've tried different routes and different reporting forms and emails and all that sort of things. And then finally, you know, this big album disappears. And yeah, it's such a win. I'd say on a kind of personal achievement for me, doing a live channel four interview um, wow a few months ago was who pretty, was that with was pretty mad so it was on a show called stess pack lunch oh okay yeah 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 so that was god this is yeah. charles play to you now <laughs> no always get nervous but yeah that was a bit of an experience that was really really scary but one of those experiences that just you're just like oh brilliant like push your comfort zones yeah so it was a really great experience and as a final question before we move on amanda what has this work taught you about yourself what's it taught me about myself it has taught me that I am very thorough I think I'm very empathetic I get a huge amount of job satisfaction out of that sounds really lame to say helping people but um, (laughs) I suppose I suppose kind of just being with people when they're in a real state of distress and Mm. feeling like you're kind of doing something to provide some calmness or provide just a space where people feel heard how rewarding that is <laughs> we've talked all about the work you've done as a practitioner for the revenge porn helpline amanda now i want to dive deeper and talk about your own mental health journey so i ask all my special guests on this topic this question first take me back to early life teenage years and were there any early mental health experiences if any who's the amanda we meet here Okay, so the Amanda you have here today, I am 29. I live down in Little Devon. I was actually born in Oman. So my parents were English language teachers and we lived over there. My brother and sister are Mm -hmm. quite a lot older than me. They grew up there. We moved back when I was quite young. I think I was three. And then I grew up. What a change. Oman to a farm. Yeah, I think it was probably quite an adjustment for my brother and sister who were sort of starting, starting secondary school. But yeah, had a lovely childhood in terms of freedom being outside being on the beach both my parents carried on being English teachers so they always worked from home so we grew up in a in a household where there were always foreign language students staying with us which was really interesting I think actually kind of just growing up in that and thinking that that was quite a normal household meeting people from all over the world definitely you know the the three of us me and my brother and sister have always loved traveling we've all sort of lived overseas for various you know chunks of time Mm -hmm. we're incredibly close the three of us we've always talked about our mental health we've always been really really open with each other my brother's now a psychiatrist so that makes sense (laughs) it all makes sense these jobs now (laughs) (laughs) yeah we all kind of work in these jobs wanting to to work with people yeah I guess I'm at that kind of a bit funny time in my life where I'm turning 30 next year same yeah we're both the same age yeah okay figuring out what I kind of want really what I really want as well Mm. you know what am I kind of told to want I've just got back from Colombia I had two weeks in Colombia and it makes you we question things a little bit I I kind of think oh god should we just get up and go again should we Mm. do another year overseas but it's not that easy obviously (laughs) well you've already been kidnapped so that's good because that Liverpool (laughs) player's parents didn't (laughs) yeah I know that happened when we were out there so yeah, I'm, I'm kind of starting this counselling course. Mm-hmm. I am working towards something. I've kind of always been a little bit like, I don't really know what I want to do. I know I want to work in the kind of sexual violence space. Mm-hmm. 
but you know what is that Mm -hmm. for a while I was thinking should I be a sex education teacher because I did English language teaching overseas so Mm -hmm. I kind of had my foot in the door with teaching already a little bit but yeah I think the counselling is the right choice and yeah that's me. Mm. Coming back to the helpline a little bit, through your work, you don't just have to view a lot of sexual content, but speak to a lot of people worried about their content being exposed, as we've talked about in depth. Now, what I found interesting is that you said to me off air that viewing the imagery didn't affect you that much, but the phone calls did. Just explain that difference to me and how it's affected your mental health. Yeah, I think you get very, very desensitized quite quickly to looking at images. I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing. I think ultimately kind of like I said earlier a body part is just a body part I think answering the phone and hearing the distress in somebody's voice is way more impactful now particularly if it's a case when you can't help is really really Mm. difficult when somebody comes in and I don't know says their content's been shared but it's over whatsapp or something and the police aren't doing anything and blah, blah 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 and you're thinking oh god this is really awful for this person and I can't I can't help I can't like if it's um, put into like a group or something like that yeah, yeah. If it's shared, yeah, if it's shared in a private way, we can't remove that content, essentially. Mm. And with these crimes, it's it's really difficult to get evidence as well, particularly if a threat's been made verbally. Especially Snapchat, because it's um, disappearing chats, isn't it? Exactly, yeah. yeah. It's really, really tough. So, you know, not only are the kind of the law is sometimes not on your side anyway, then you've got to go with this whole thing of not being able to evidence the crime. And obviously the police can't <laughs> act without evidence. So, yeah, those calls are really, really distressing and they do stay with you we do some similar work in the sense that you hear a lot of people who are very distressed and I interview a lot of people who are very traumatized at times so it is very hard to switch off I think and we know that if we don't it's not going to end well for our mental health how do you switch off healthily yeah 100 percent. I think it it almost comes with a lack of practice as well I think Mm. maybe in the early days it was really hard to switch off and you just wanted to go home and do everything you could, you know, dedicate all of your time into trying to do something to kind of help that person you'd spoken to. But I think you very quickly realise that that isn't sustainable. You are going to burn out. You do need to have boundaries. You do need to look after yourself. So I think it's all about self-care, what you enjoy doing in your downtime. As I said, I live in beautiful Devon. So summers are very much spent pretty much every weekend camping in our van with my boyfriend, seeing our friends, all the kind of usual things that people do, I suppose, in their downtime. I love being with my niece and my two nephews. I describe them as medicine for the soul because every single time I see them, they just cheer me up. (laughs) Um, So, yeah. Yeah, love that. You said the comments underneath these pieces of content when they're leaked online are often worse than the image and I can very much understand that. Can you just elaborate on that and have you taken steps to just not look at them all together or do you have to as part of the work? No, you don't have to. Okay. Sometimes it's difficult not to. I know it yeah. sounds weird, but I think if you've built up a relationship with somebody, if you've had lots of phone calls with them or if you've been supporting them for a long time, then you're quite invested. And I'm not going to give you examples. You've seen of course, yeah, yeah. I'm yeah, sure yeah. you can imagine the, yeah, it's pretty. Pretty grim, yeah, yeah. It's pretty grim, yeah. Just ultimately very dehumanising. And ultimately, this is why we kind of want to take the burden off the searching process for clients because mm-hmm. if they want us to, of course, <laughs> you know, it's very important that we're there's that level of transparency as well. But we don't want to think of people sitting for hours and hours and hours getting themselves into a hole searching for content looking at these comments repeatedly that's where we kind of try and take it off them I suppose that is just like transferring digital mental illness isn't it really in a nutshell Mm. yeah 
I want to move on to the counselor training now. You mentioned it a little bit earlier, but you said that you found the self-exploration process around it a little bit weird. Just unpack that for me. Yeah, I guess. So a lot of the course is looking inward and looking at why you are the way you are. It feels quite narcissistic, I suppose. (laughs) I didn't talk for hours and hours about the kind of intricacies of your character. English people aren't good at doing that, are we? (laughs) (laughs) We are not good at doing it. We are not good at doing it. Americans, they love it. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And and it can feel quite vulnerable. It can feel quite Mm. exposing, particularly in the early days when you're kind of finding your feet with the kind of group and how much do you disclose? How much do you not disclose? You've got to disclose a certain amount, otherwise you're not going to get anything out of it. But also it needs to be done comfortably in a safe way so yeah a lot of a lot of talking about yourself (laughs) and before we reflect you also went traveling for a period of time a few years ago you also went traveling a couple months ago to Colombia now this very much makes sense given your family your parents background should I say but as a Devon girl not born but bred is that right (laughs) yeah yes how was Vietnam and Bali compared to the West Country Yeah, completely different, (laughs) as you can imagine. No, it was amazing. It was a really, really amazing time. I mean, Vietnam and Bali, just so different Mm. to to each other, really. Completely different experiences. Vietnam was a real adventure. You know, we lived in in a really kind of remote city. It was our first time teaching for the first time. We just sort of bought flights out there and thought, we'll just find a job when we get there. And it all fortunately worked out (laughs) in our favour. Bali was a much kind of easier lifestyle, I suppose. Um, shock (laughs) (laughs) yeah yeah the whole kind of Bali lifestyle I mean we were working very long hours but we definitely had uh, perks of half moon parties and all that (laughs) (laughs) where we would spend our downtime yeah no it was it was it was brilliant you said it was the happiest period of your life so how did you feel when you came back to the UK especially when it coincided with the global pandemic and a COVID-19 lockdown yeah it was mad wasn't it that whole time was just crazy I don't know if it was the happiest years of my life it was it was a very happy time I think every section of your life you kind of look back and you know the kind of positives and the and the negatives yeah, I I guess, I guess. Yeah. yeah it was it was a bit mad obviously we kind of saw so COVID happened when we were in Bali and we sort of saw it kind of just sweep across mm. the world and then I remember my brother calling me obviously because he works in the NHS and just being like look I think I think you need to come home nobody knows what this is going to be yeah it was at that very early stage where we were like what is it, what is going to happen you know I think we managed to get like the last flight out of Bali pretty much oh, that um, is literally the last helicopter out of Vietnam <laughs> that's the literal <laughs> meaning of it yeah it was mad I remember changing in um, Dubai and everybody in the airport was sleeping it was just packed where people couldn't make their connecting flights the departure boards were all just cancelled 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 and then it said London Heathrow and then the gate number and we were just like <laughs> there is a god Um, yeah it was it was mad I mean when I got back my mum said that she had been praying continue and she's not religious but she she had been praying continuously for the last three days so I think it was probably partly partly her but yeah it was really weird so we kind of didn't have anywhere to live because the whole trip was cut short so my sister lives on a farm and has a couple of caravans and she said oh you know, move into the, one of the caravans for a couple of weeks while you self-isolate and you can kind of make a plan. A year later, we're still in this caravan. <laughs> I mean, when I say caravan, it, it was more of like a kind of mobile home. I sure. Suppose. Yeah. But it was actually a really happy time, a really happy year. I think going from being in Bali to kind of coming straight back into the Devonshire countryside and everything being so green and lush and being with my family, being with my nieces and nephew, it was weird. I carried on my English language teaching online and my boyfriend 
turned into a dairy farmer overnight. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was it was weird, but it was it was a really happy time. And I kind of say that knowing that COVID was a really unhappy time for lots mm. and lots of people. But, you made the most of it, um, let's be real. We made the most of it, yeah. Mm. <laughs> let's reflect on your mental health journey, Amanda. So similar question as before, what has this mental health journey taught you about yourself? Um, it's taught me to push your comfort zones wherever you can. Again, I think it sounds really cheesy, doesn't it? But I think that is what life's about. It's about new experience. It's about doing things that feel scary because ultimately the the kind of buzz that you get afterwards is it's just amazing. And it makes you feel like you can do anything. It makes you feel like there's so many opportunity and, and that there's kind of no limits. So yeah, keep kind of doing things that scare you. So that's what it sort of taught me, particularly with the kind of traveling side of things. I think, I don't think you ever regret traveling. Well, <laughs> obviously <laughs> it's really really bad depending yeah. yeah yeah generally like you kind of learn from all of those experiences and I think you should just always take them whenever you get the chance and as a final question if you could go back and talk to the Amanda who was considering packing up and going traveling around Vietnam and Bali the Amanda who was taking those quite distressing calls about leaked IIA or the Amanda who was wondering whether to train as a counselor and figuring herself out what would you say to her knowing what you do now do it (laughs) do it all take on every single experience you can keep saying yes always have an open mind try to not worry and I know that's (laughs) it's not that simple but try not let yourself get in the way of things be positive remember all the good things about yourself and yeah do it Our final topic of conversation, Amanda, and it's one I try and have with all of my special guests, if we have time. It is a general natter and quickfire chat about our mental health. So firstly, how is your mental health? I think my mental health right now is pretty good. I think that there's some good things coming up, right? We're at the beginning of December. I've got a big family party tomorrow. So yeah, right now I'm feeling pretty positive. Excellent. Love to hear that. And what age were you when you became self-aware of your mental health and you realised that the feelings you were having weren't physical and they were actually in your mind? Uh, Yeah, I think as I said earlier, kind of growing up very close to my siblings, we always sort of had these conversations. Mm. I'm the baby by quite a long way. So there was always somebody to talk to and always somebody to get advice from. And what things, if any, do you find in life that trigger your mental health? So it could be things people say to you. It could be a sound, a sensation, being in a particular social environment. Or have you not figured all of them out yet? I still haven't figured them all out, I don't think. I think I get very nervous if there's an expectation on me. Mm -hmm. I'm very hard on myself. External pressure. pressure, yeah. External pressure. I'm a huge perfectionist. Um, I've been reading Testify. a lot about... Testify. <laughs> yeah, I've been reading a lot about Brené Brown and the kind of shame around being a perfectionist and I find it all really, really fascinating. So yeah, definitely learning that about myself. I feel anxious when I don't feel like I'm being understood or I don't feel like I'm kind of with my people who get me, I suppose. And I feel stressed if I'm feeling burnt out at yep. work. understand that completely. Conversely, then, what positive tools and methods do you use to improve your mental health or help you feel better? Which ones have you found that have worked? Maybe which ones that you've tried but haven't? Being outside is, for me, being in nature, as cheesy as that sounds, I think. Just stepping away, doing things I enjoy. I love swimming. I like music. Mindfulness, although I'm not very mm-hmm. good at it, but we're kind of, you know, there's a lot of our kind of count- the counselling course that I'm doing at the moment being in the present, looking at what's around you, paying attention to your senses. If I'm feeling really overwhelmed, I try to go to that place. But yeah, the classic, I'm not very good at it, which feels very <laughs> the opposite of what mindfulness is about, but kind of practicing those skills, I guess. Have you read The Natural Health Service by Isabel Harvman? No. You should very much read that one. 
I would say. Make a note of that. (laughs) Speaking of books, what has been the best book or mental health Bible, as I call it, you've read for your mental health? Now, it can be mental health or self-help related. It doesn't have to be. And if you can't think of a book, an album, a TV show, any piece of popular culture. Sure. Okay. So I'm reading at the moment a book by somebody called Susan Cain called Quiet. Yes. Read it. Yeah. Yeah. Love that. Love that book. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely love it. As an introvert, a proud introvert, it's just amazing, isn't it? Mm -hmm. I think we've so kind of got it wrong, I suppose, in society and what we kind of value and what we see as success and what we see as admirable qualities. And not that they're not, we need both, Mm -hmm. but yeah, there needs to be more positivity around being an introvert and the qualities Mm. that that can bring i really hope there's one for extroverts because i'm extroverted as fuck and i've felt throughout my life as well that people were always telling me to be quiet like the opposite yeah so i can see both sides that Mm. is interesting yeah i kind of had the same with my boyfriend because he's a huge extrovert and he sort of put it down and thought oh it's so anti extroverts no i didn't get that i I enjoyed it because it made me learn about introverts but yeah i can see why he might have assumed that yeah yeah If there was a mantra in life that summed up your mental health, what would it be and why? Um, I think what we were talking earlier about that kind of like feeling the fear and doing it anyway. Just do um, it. Just do it. Yeah. yeah, it's something that I'm trying to be a bit more in my life at the moment. I've got two questions left. The first mm-hmm. one is, what do you love about yourself? Well, this is a horrible question, isn't it? <laughs> For English people, it is, mate. <laughs> oh, God, it feels so unnatural to, to talk about what you love about yourself. But no, self-love, really important. I would say that I think I'm a bit of an old soul. I think I'm quite wise. And I think people come to me for advice with things. I don't follow the trend when it comes mm. to sort of fashion and music. And I don't like social media. I don't engage in that world. And I think these sort of things would have made me quite embarrassed five, six years ago, whereas now I'm really kind of embracing that side of myself. Love that. <laughs> yeah. And as a final question, this is a broad one. What more do you think we have to do to ensure people from all backgrounds, all walks of life feel comfortable and safe in opening up about their mental health issues or just their general mental health, if most importantly, they want to do it? Yeah, I think it's great that we have so much more awareness around mental health. We seem to have like come on so far, I think. Obviously, we've still got a long way to go. Just just the classic thing is keep being kind to people, keep reminding people to keep talking, to keep opening up. And, you know, ultimately, we need to get the people in power to keep investing in resources, organisations, charities like the Revenge Porn Helpline to support people. Amanda, it's been an absolutely lovely chat. Thank you so much for coming on the Just Checking In podcast and talking to me, pal. Thank you, Freddie. Well, that's all we've got time for on this episode of the Just Checking In pod. I want to say a massive thank you to Amanda for being my special guest on this episode's pod, for checking in with me and for telling me all about IIA and all of its forms and the work that the Revenge Porn Helpline does. If you or someone you know have been affected by this issue, I'll put links to where you can find out more about the Revenge Porn Helpline in the show notes. And I'll sign us off by saying, remember, if you've liked what you've heard, please give it a share on social media. Tell your friends or work colleagues about it. If you're feeling generous, write us a review and give us a five-star rating Apple Podcasts and help us out with the algorithms. If you like what we're doing at Vent and want to support us further, you can do so by going to our Patreon. That's www.patreon.com slash venthelpuk or go to our link tree. That's linktr.ee slash venthelpuk to find out more about all the other ways you can financially support Vent. We hope to check in with you again very soon. And remember, guys, it is always okay to vent. Just check in.